light and savor you. Lord, thank you for life and for the joy of studying your word together. Be glorified now as we as we hear your voice. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 22 this morning. And this uh, section, just to remind you of where we are as we come through Ezra. This is the end of the first leader. This is Zerubbabel's finishing his governor, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel. This is his, his ending as a leader. This is the end of his section. So he has chapters 1 through 6. Ezra shows up in chapter 7, which is about 50-something, 60, 50, 60 years after chapter 6. There's a gap there, and that's when the book of Ezra, that's when the book of Esther happens, is in this gap period where Artaxerxes becomes king, and Darius... Uh, Darius's reign ends, and then Artaxerxes becomes king, and so you have this gap here, and this passage is the end of Zerubbabel, and what we have at the end of Zerubbabel's building is a temple is rebuilt, sacrifices are reinstituted, and they celebrate with the Passover feast, a fitting end to this section. So let's read chapter 6, verse 13 through 22 together, and... Uh, Then we'll dive right in. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet Zachariah, Haggai the prophet and and Zechariah, the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of God, of of the God of Israel, and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. And the people of Israel... The priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered the de- at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for Israel, twelve male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions, and the Levites in their divisions for service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, he, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles for their fellow priests and for themselves, it was written, it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful 
and had turned the hearts of the king, the heart of the king of Assyria, to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And may God add His blessing to the reading and the hearing of His word. So in Ezra chapter six, the the book breaks down with these three things. We've got the end of chapter six giving you the temple is completed in verses 13 through 15. The temple is dedicated in verses 16 through 18. And the Passover is celebrated in verses 19 through 22. This is going to be our primary way of breaking down this text this morning. This way we will see what goes where. So first, let's talk about the temple being completed. First thing to note about the temples being completed is that the prophets and masons are both needed. We talked about this last week, how you had... The prophets empowering the people of God by the word of God to do the work of God. You need prophets, but in order to build the temple, you also need masons. You need people who are craftsmen, people who work with their hands. Prophets and masons are both needed to accomplish the work of God. To accomplish the work of God, people with all sorts of talents are needed. People who have gifts in one area have gifts that complement people who have gifts in other areas. The, the people of God work together to build the temple. Could you imagine if Zechariah and Haggai were standing out there by themselves and they started proclaiming that you needed to rebuild the temple and nobody started building? Instead, they just all started doing the same thing Zechariah and Haggai were doing and saying, The word of the Lord says that we're supposed to rebuild this temple. You need to get to work rebuilding the temple. How do you live in houses with paneled houses when when the temple of God stands unfinished? How do you live there and the other ones standing up giving prophecies and and visions and and pictures of things and craftsmen and hornsmen and all these things. And you've, you've got nobody actually doing the work, but everybody's prophesying. Well, the temple would not be rebuilt, would it? It wouldn't be completed because the talents of everybody are required for the purpose of building the temple of God. It requires more. It requires more. So we see the prophets must speak. The prophets must speak and the craftsmen must work. It is the same in the church. Here we have in 1 Corinthians 12 verses 4 through 7. It says, now... There are a variety, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So note there, note, note there. The same spirit, the same Lord, and the same God. The same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God. Your gifts are given to you for the focus of one. Focus of one God, one Lord. But they're different gifts. You have different talents, different abilities to bring towards the kingdom of God. You are given and empowered with things differently in order that you would bring them to the Lord and the Lord would use them for the kingdom. And in the church, that's what we do. We serve one another with the gifts we are given. And I would say you serve one another with gifts and talents. Some of you are very talented at things. Use those talents 
For, and you understand the difference between a gift and a talent. A talent is something that has been developed over years of practice and skill and effort, and you have developed a talent. A gift is something that comes naturally to you because it is a gift handed to you by the Spirit of God. Both of those are to be brought to bear in the building up of the church. And as we have studied over and over through the book of Ezra, for Christians, the church is us. We are the building. We are the people. The people are what we are to be building up. The people of God, the church, is to be everyone has different gifts for the common mission. And our unity is in the recognition that the Lord is in each other. Our unity is found in the recognition that there is one, the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God who empowers us. The Lord is at work in each one of us differently. Just because your gifts are different than mine doesn't make them any less a valuable gift. The mason was required as well as the prophet. The person who spoke as well as the person who organized. The person who built as well as the person who drew the plans. They were all required. Everyone required to build the building. Then we have in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Just a pause for those of you who have heard a lot of people talk about the five offices that are mentioned here. Uh, I just want to encourage you. There are times when Paul just rattles stuff off. And this is one of them. Don't overthink it. Don't, this isn't a stepladder. This isn't a, this is, he's rattling off different positions. He's just kind of rattling them off as he writes. Right now there is some, Something to be said about the type of things that are here. This is just a side note. There are some things to be said about the type of ministries that are mentioned here. Yet, what Paul is emphasizing here is like, look, there's a lot of different types of people. There's a lot of different types of roles that are played. There's a lot of different uh, administrations of God's work through various positions. So we see he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. And here's Paul's point. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Now, just in your brain, this might be helpful. I want you to imagine the building up of the church of God, the building up of each other, as building a temple. If you do not have a unified temple, and there's a wall that is disconnected from the other walls, what happens? In time, that falls over. The wall by itself falls over or the temple itself collapse, collapses into itself. We have to have, the, this is why Paul emphasizes unity because you are being built into the temple of God together. You are to be unified because when you're unified, you're connected. And when you're connected, you stand strong and you stand appropriately as a building would. If you built a building and you decided you were going to leave a two foot gap between every corner, that building would not stand for very long. It would not be a structurally sound building. No, it needs to be connected in unity. And so we, we do it until we attain the unity of faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue, the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro 
by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Everyone is in a unique position for the purpose of growing the body. Everyone is unique for the purpose of growing the body. When you see a fellow believer and you think, I wonder how I can encourage them. One of the things that will definitely encourage them is to observe them and to try to identify some strengths and then tell them about those strengths. I see you're really good at this. You do this really, really well. This is something that you have a gift for to tell them that you see those things in them will build them up and will inspire them to work towards the kingdom. We are to be driving each other together into unity of the kingdom of God so that the building would be built. The church of God would be built. The church in which he dwells, us, would be built up. We spend a lot of time in the American church cutting each other down. It happens often. It's not hard to look up on YouTube or TikTok or Insta-whatever or anything to find people cutting down believers. And I mean believers. I don't mean when they're confronting heresy. I mean when they're cutting down flat-out believers who are just a soundbite taken out of context or or an idea burned. Listen, people who are false... Ignore them. But people who are genuine believers who love the Lord, encourage them and uplift them and bring them encouragement. Encourage them by pointing out what they're good at, by showing them you've got this gift and it can be used here. And, and hey, I need help with this and you're really good at this. And those kinds of things, you will find that you will build the building of God. You'll build the kingdom of God and there will be great joy in watching the kingdom of God built. As it builds itself up in love together, everyone is in it. Everyone is in unique positions for the purpose of building the, the body. You needed the prophets and the masons. Then finally, here I want to give you one more verse, one more set of verses. First Peter chapter four, verses ten through eleven says, "As each one received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varies varied grace. Whoever speaks as the one." Who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Use your gifts according to where God has assigned you to work. You have gifts, you have them. Don't hide them. Don't push them aside. Don't ignore them. Use them where you've been able to use them. Use them when God opens the door to use them. Use them with boldness to love one another and lift one another up. Use them to build the church of God. You build the church with your gifts. You need masons and prophets for the work. Second, 
The work gets finished by the command of God. Did you notice that there? It's there in verse uh, 14. It says, And the elders of the Jews prospered through Zechariah, through the prophecy, through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah son of Edo. They finished their building by the decree or command of God. They finished their building by the decree or the command, that word can be either one, of God. They, they finished by the command of God. So they build according to the command of God. His command gives both warrant and standard. They finished the building by the decree of God. It is the command that gives them warrant and standard. So they are able to build the building of God because God has said, I'm going to make you able to build the building of God. You're going to build the temple. So it's the warrant and the standard. One of the things that rattled my soul and inspired me to worship the Lord with more fervor than I had ever done before was this question. How does God want us to worship him? It was a great question. Because I was in church ministry when we read that book. And the question that you ask at staff meeting in church ministries of larger churches is often, how do the people best worship God? It's a genuine question. You want people to be able to engage and worship. It's not a evil question to ask. Yet I had never asked the question, how does God want to be worshipped? Which is odd, right? That should be the first question you ask. And I was challenged with that question. How does God want us to worship him? So I would impose that question to you in light of what we have seen already, that you have been given gifts and your gifts are to be poured out on God as a worship offering. Romans chapter 12, you are to give your life to him as an act of worship, sacrifice, sacrificial giving of your life as an act of worship in order to give to the Lord and build the temple of God, the church of God, you are to be sacrificing your life. So I would impose this question to you, or how does God want you to worship Him? How does God want you to use your gifts to worship Him? This is a great question to ask. And it's one that the body can encourage you to answer. The body can give you some ideas on how to answer it. But in reality, it's one you have to wrestle with. It's one you have to wrestle with. And to model this for you, I would point you to Jeremiah, who is given the call of God to preach and prophesy, and he wrestles with it. I don't want to do that. And God says, you're going to. And he says, but I'm so young. And God says, you're going to. And he ends up doing it in the same way. I imagine there are people who were masons in Israel that were looking at the temple going, I don't know that I'm a good enough mason to do this. I don't know that I'm a good enough mason to do this. And God said by the word of by the word of Zechariah and the word of Haggai, go and do it. And he and they did it. And so ask the Lord, how am I supposed to be using my gifts to worship you? How am I supposed to worship you? He will answer you. He will tell you. He does not keep secrets from His people. He speaks to us boldly and with truth. Further, He lays out His will for you in His Word. The Lord lays out His will for you in His Word. I'm just going to give you four passages of Scripture. These come from a book called The Four Wills of God. And these are places in the New Testament where it says, 
this is the will of God. So I'll just give you four examples. One, we believe in Jesus. You, the wills of God, one, is that you would believe in Jesus. Chapter John chapter 6, verse 40. Second, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says that this is His will for you, your sanctification, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. That you would give thanks in everything. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. For it is the will of God that you would give thanks in everything. And then that you would do what is right. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. That this is the will of God that you would do what is right in the eyes of the governing officials and in the eyes of the world even. That you would do what is right and live according to the gospel. We live according to His will, and we organize ourselves around this. This is just four of them. But if you read the New Testament through, and just mark out every time that you see the delight of God, the will of God, the purpose of God, the the want of God, the desire of God, when you mark those things out, you'll see that Scripture is replete with telling you what the will of God is. God does not hide it. He does not keep it from you. He shows you what His will is in His Word. He lays out how you are to worship Him in His Word. He tells you how you are to be uh, saved, sanctified, and glorified in His Word. He walks you through everything in His Word. Get close to the Word of God and you will understand what is the will of God. You want to know why so many Christian men have midlife crises? It's because they aren't in relationship to the Word of God. I'm confident every man that I have ever met who has had a close relationship with the Word of God, who is a believer and has a close relationship with the Word of God, and derives their worship from what it says, derives their lifestyle from what the Word of God says. I have watched those men not have midlife crisis. But Christian men who do not have a close relationship with the Word of God, come somewhere in their middle-aged life and they begin to have crisis after crisis after crisis. And the answer is to drive them to the Word of God. To drive them to the Word of God that they would see and savor the Lord and know who He is. If they are dri- they're driven to understanding the will of God and the Word of God, they will do the work of God. This is how it works. So they finish the decree of God. The decree of God or the command of God gives warrant and standard for the work. It lay- it's laid out in the Word. And we live according to His will. We live according to His will and we organize our lives around it. That's what we see here at the end of this passage. The house was finished uh, on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of the king of Dar- the king Darius. Now, the prophets and masons, just to recap, the temple completed means the prophets and masons are both required for the work and they finish by the decree of God or the command of God. And then there's this third random entry here. If you saw that in verse uh, 14 at the very end, and Artaxerxes the king of Persia. I want you to know this kind of throws off the timeline a little bit. We saw this happen also in chapter 4 and 5, right? When it suddenly went off and talked about uh, Artaxerxes there. In particular, in chapter 4, verses 6 
through verse 23. Remember there was that whole side note where it said, here's what was happening with the letters all through the reign of Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, and Xerxes, all through the reign of all of them. And so we see that Artaxerxes is mentioned. And the question should pop into your mind, why is Artaxerxes mentioned? Why? So I just have three basic things. First, he's friendly-ish. He's kind of friendly to the kingdom of God. And I say he's friendly-ish because we, we run into this habit as Christians. When we see somebody who does something good, we tend to think that they're suddenly Christian. Or we tend to suddenly think that they do something uh, that they do something worthy of the kingdom and then we go oh well, they must be believers same in the old testament we see cyrus lets the jews go and we go well cyrus must have been a believer even though isaiah says he's not twice even though isaiah says you don't know me and you don't know my name and you're not going to he says it twice and then uh, we see in history cyrus was a great synchronist he he added things to his own religion he just added another religion whenever it was convenient so we tend to, as a culture, see somebody do something good and we go, oh, they must be Christian. This is, especially, I have this problem. I like to watch stand-up comedians and I have this problem whenever a stand-up comedian doesn't cuss. I'm like, he must be a believer. <laughs> no, they are not. <laughs> They're just funny. And so we, we have these times when we see these things and we go, oh, well, they must be, they must be on our team. No, they're not. But they're at least friendly. So Artaxerxes is mentioned here partly because he's friendly to Ezra. He's nice to Ezra. And in the next couple chapters, he actually does a good job governing uh, from a distance. He's, he leaves them alone. He, he's kind of a distant ruler who, who leaves them at peace. I believe that these rulers in Persia are the model that Paul has in mind when he says, pray for your leaders that you would live a peaceful and quiet life. That's code for pray for your leaders that they would leave you alone. That's what that means. Live a peaceful and quiet life. So he's friendly. Second is he's responsible for the maintenance of the temple. The temple gets finished under Darius, but Artaxerxes is still kind of responsible for the maintenance that comes later on. And so he is supplying tax money for sacrifices for many years. For many, many years. And so we, we want to be attentive to the idea that he's friendly and kind to the Israelites. He's friendly and kind to the, the people of Israel. And then the third and probably the most important point to draw from mentions of Cyrus and Artaxerxes and mentions like this that are made outside of the context of the narrative when they're just kind of thrown in there. One of the things that Ezra wants to drive home is God will use any king he wants to accomplish his purposes. God will use any king he wants to accomplish his purposes. Any president that's put in power, any leader, any senator, any congressman that's put in power, God can turn their heart wherever he desires. And he will use whoever he wants to accomplish his purposes. And that's the big point of mentioning Artaxerxes out of out of step here, mentioning out of out of the narrative. So Artaxerxes gets mentioned there. 
to remind us that God preserves his kingdom through everyone. Second section, temple is dedicated in verses 16 through 18. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered and at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set priests in their divisions and Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it was written in the book of Moses. So they set out the dedication of the temple. And there's a couple things to note. First, there's no contrast in emotion this time. As opposed to chapter 3, verse 11 through 13, remember when they have this, they build the foundations and they have this big worship service and there are people crying because it's not as good as the old one and people who are screaming because it's amazing. And the shout is so loud that adversaries are drawn to it. Adversaries come and problems start. So, unlike that mention, this one, There's no contrast in the emotions this time. This time, everyone is excited. Perhaps because it's been... Do the math. 19 years? 19 years since they started? It's taken them 19 years. There was a 15-year delay. And it's taken them roughly 19 years to finish this temple. So they've been working on it for roughly 19 years. You're very familiar with how long it takes... For these things to be built because we live in Texas and they are always working on the highway. And highways are not temples, so they're not as nice. And they're not as good, but they take forever to build. In the same way, can you imagine how excited you are when a highway is finished and you can drive on it? Could you imagine how excited you'd be? That the temple of God, where the focus of your worship and heart are, is finished. And all of a sudden, you are able to worship the Lord the way that he prescribed in the book that you believe. In the work and in the word that God has provided. Can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, we get excited about highways being finished. Can you imagine a temple? A temple being finished. There's no contrasting emotion this time. After years of labor, they were rejoicing. They were rejoicing after years of labor. And I would contend for you that your years of labor in the kingdom, in the expectation of what's to come, will pay off much greater than this. Much greater than we see in Ezra. Your labor in the kingdom of God, can you imagine when... We have this picture in the book of Revelation. We have this beautiful picture of the temple coming down from the sky and heaven uniting with earth. Whether you take that as picture or literal, it doesn't matter. Can you imagine the day of the Christ's return when the temple is fully realized? When the church is fully realized. There's no already, not yet. There's a complete vision of God before us and we stand in his presence your years of labor and toil and work before the Lord suddenly brought to complete fruition 
your years of labor in the kingdom suddenly making total sense. Your years of pursuing holiness and righteousness to be the person that God has made you to be. That years of work standing before him in fullness and in beauty and seeing the kingdom of God that you are a part of. Oh, how wonderful. There is no contrasting emotion. And this is supposed to point us to the fact that we work now for a greater kingdom to come. We work now for a greater kingdom to come. This temple that they built, that the Israelites built, is a picture of the greater temple, of the greater reality of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is a shadow of what is to come. And we will one day stand and worship the Lord together, and it will be incredible. If we labor in the Spirit now, we will not despise the day of small beginnings. Remember Zechariah's warning in chapter 4. Do not despise the small beginnings. So they have small beginnings here. Now, I want you to notice the emphasis in the words, this house, this house of God. It's twice in there. This house of God. This house of God. And that's to contrast the house of God. That is the greater reality. Ezra knew. The people of Israel knew that there was a greater king to come. There was a greater kingdom to come. Indeed, Zechariah has already stood up and said, there's something greater. He's already said it. He's already talked about eschatology through the last four chapters of Zechariah. That's all he spends his time on. He has told us He has told the Hebrews, he has spoken to them and said, there's a greater temple coming. But this one is valuable. This one has value. Do not despise the day of small beginnings, for God will use this day of small beginnings for his glory and his name forever. So this may not be the house, but it is this house. It is pointing to this house. So, Christian, I want you to remind yourself of something. I want, I want all of us to remind ourselves of something. That, that we have small beginnings here that have greater impact in the kingdom. What you do here matters in eternity. You are doing things here, laboring here for greater purposes. And here it looks really small. Loving your kid when it's hard to love him looks really small. Loving your neighbor when it's hard to love them looks really small. Loving your spouse when it's hard to love them looks really small. But it has a greater purpose in the kingdom of God. It has a greater purpose in the kingdom of God. Coming to worship on a regular basis, staying steady and faithful and steadfast looks really small. But it is a greater purpose in the kingdom of God. Working to serve others who do not deserve it and show unmerited favor to people who don't deserve it looks really small, but in the kingdom it has an incredible impact. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Do not despise the day of small beginnings, for God has something greater for us and for everyone. So there's no contrast in emotions this time with the dedication of this temple. And then the second, we want to compare the dedication of Solomon's sacrifices to the dedication of the temple. You can find that in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 63. You might want to just jot that down. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 63. Look that up. You'll see Solomon had thousands 
of things he was sacrificing. He had thousands of things he was sacrificing. There we go. He had thousands of issues he was sacrificing, thousands of animals that he sacrificed to the Lord. And no doubt that there were people who were in Jerusalem at the time, saw the temple, saw the sacrifice at the dedication, and were detractors. Well, you know Solomon's was so much bigger. You know, this isn't really adequate. It's really not. This isn't really as big as it should be. You know, Solomon did when I was, you know, the old guy that's in the back. I was there when Solomon and he says, you know, I was there and you don't you didn't do it right. That guy. No one likes that guy. Don't be that guy. So that guy is in the back and he's detracting from the worship of God, the dedication of God. He's detracting. And for no reason, mind you, for no reason. He's detracting. So how do we address doubt and detractors? In the world, you will have troubles. Sometimes they come from people within the church who detract and who doubt and who push and pick and nitpick. So the first thing to do is to ground 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 yourself in the word. Ground yourself in the word. You saw that back in uh, verse 8, verse 14, where they prospered through the word of Haggai and Zechariah. They ground themselves in the word of God. So you, Christian, ought to know the word of God, ought to have it in your heart and in your life, and you ought to know your purpose through the word of God. Your general purpose through the word. Second, they have a willing focus. They have a willing mind focused on what we have rather than what we have not. They were focused on what they had rather than what they have not. There's a great, very practical saying. You work with what you have, not with what you hope for. It's a great, practical, very practical saying. Work with what you have, not with what you hope for. This is the idea. They have this amount. Solomon was one of the wealthiest kings in history. Of course they had more sacrifices. They also had more people. They were sacrificing proportionate to the people they had. A massive kingdom. Did you know when Solomon was there, they had city walls too. It was huge. Jerusalem was a massive city with lots of people in it. And it had a big temple. It also had huge gates and an army. But these exiles, they don't have that. They've got a temple. That's it. That's it. They've got a temple. A bunch of houses built around the temple. That's it. They are sacrificing proportionately to what they have. They are thankful. Their thankful hearts received not the blood and goats, but thankfulness in their hearts. The Lord received their gratitude and their thankful hearts. So first, you want to ground yourself in the word. Second, you want to have a willing focus on the Lord and the sacrifices recognizing that you're proportionately giving and proportionately sacrificing according to the means God has given you to do so. And then third, they rely on the greater community. They're connected together. It's the elders of the Jews. The Jewish people there together. The sacrifice is made for every tribe. They have their identities caught up in the body of Israel, in the people of God. They have their identities caught up together in the people of God. They have a connection to the community. And they build together to share in a community that is greater than their own immediate 
context. Likewise, we as Christians have a great cloud of witnesses that have come before us. We are part of a greater community. We are part of a greater community of God. Indeed, you can see this lived out now by simply being around another church of genuine believers. I have to caveat that they have to be genuine believers. But a church of genuine believers, when you go in to meet with them, when you go in to worship with them, you join in the community of faith. You are doing what they were doing to address doubt and detractors. How do you address doubt and detractors? One, the Word of God. Two, a willing, focused mind on the work of God. And then three, an understanding that you are a part of a greater community. That you are a part of a community of faith and you are not alone. And while the whole, while it feels like everybody is arguing over the color, color of carpet and whether or not you should have stained glass windows or plain windows right nowadays, you are part of a community of faith that is focused on something greater than that nonsense. You are part of a community of faith that is focused on something greater than whether or not you have mist machines or small fog machines. Or neither. You're... In a community, I love the look of the people at Sovereign Grace when I say things like that because you just don't know. You're like, what? Who's arguing over that? It's a common argument. This is great. I'm so glad you don't know. <laughs> so, how do you dress down detractors? Those three things. Next, the dedication of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was bigger. Um, and of course, we mentioned that. And then, how to address. So we want to get to celebration. The Passover is celebrated here in verse 19 through 22. And this is where I have wanted to spend all morning this idea that the dedication of the temple, the the completion of the temple, the dedication of the temple, and Solomon's sacrifice are great, but they lack one clear thing. They lack one clear thing, and that's the prophet, priest, and king who would come to redeem and rescue. And we get a picture of that right here. You see, this book, Ezra, in chapter 4, moved from Hebrew to Aramaic. And the whole thing has been written in Aramaic from that time until this verse, until verse 19. All of a sudden, it goes back to Hebrew. The temple has been built. They've made their dedication sacrifices. They've organized their religious system as perfect as they could. But until this moment... Their heart language is not spoken in this book. Until this moment, the people of God lack the connection to God. They lack the heart language that connected them to the Lord. Their voice was Aramaic up to this point. Now, just to clarify, Aramaic is not Hebrew. It's also not a derivative of Hebrew. It comes from the same Semitic region. It is a separate language. It's a separate language from Hebrew. It is not the same. It was the common tongue in the Canaanite area. Much like English is the common tongue across most of our earth. Their language, the language of the Hebrew people with God, was Hebrew. Their law was written in Hebrew. Their voices were proclaimed in Hebrew. Their songs were written in Hebrew. I don't know if you've ever tried to sing an ancient song that was written in Latin. Tried to sing it in English. How the words feel so weird and uncomfortable 
and plunky, or you've, or, or even better, you know songs in English, and then you hear some Spanish worship team do them, and it's it, it's uncomfortable. The words don't rhyme. They don't bounce right. They have to change the cadence on a few things. This is worship for them. The, the Hebrew language was the way they communicated with God, and here it's been void for 19 years. They haven't been able to communicate with God in their own language, in their own heart language. This is what Ezra is driving home for you until this point, until the Passover, verse 19, on the 14th day of the month, the returned exiles, note how it refers to them, the returned exiles kept the Passover for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. That was in the above chapter, I mean in the above passage, all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for the fellow priests, for themselves. And it was eaten. Check this out. It was eaten. This is beautiful. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from the exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord the God of Israel. Israel celebrates the Passover lamb. And so does anybody else who will separate themselves from the uncleanness of the people of the land. Anybody else who would separate themselves from the world and worship Yahweh. Anybody else who would separate themselves from the world and seek the cleansing of the Passover lamb. Anybody else who would separate themselves from the worship of the world and seek the Passover atonement on their soul, they got to get it. They got to be a part of it. They got to be a part of it. They get to do it. The Hebrew voice is restored in verse 19. Indeed, I would explain to you that you get to worship Christ. You get to worship the Lord because of Christ, our Passover lamb. Now, the Hebrew voice is restored. The language is changed in this passage to prove it. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And Jesus restores our connection to God. So we have first, I want to read John. And you who were once, or sorry, this is Colossians. Colossians 1. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And in the scripture, we have this over and over, right? John the Baptist identifies it, identifies him as the lamb of God in chapter 1, verse 9, 29 of John. Uh, then you have in um, 1 Corinthians you have Jesus, First Corinthians 11, which we read every night. Jesus holds up the Passover bread and the cup and says, this is me. This is me. I'm what you're celebrating here. This is me. And then he's in John in first John, chapter two, verse two. Jesus is called our atoning sacrifice. He died for our sins and not in that passage. Jesus, the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 7, we are, we are to cleanse out the leaven of sin in our lives 
because Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is our Passover lamb. He's what gives us access. And hear me, he's what gives you a heart language to be able to connect with God again. We are muddled and overwhelmed by the sounds of the world. We're muddled and overwhelmed by the sounds of the world because we speak Aramaic. We know what Aramaic sounds like. And that's why it means so much when God speaks to our hearts directly in a language that we understand. With a voice that we know and understand. And I'm speaking about something that's so much deeper than just words. Right, This is those moments when you have opened the Word of God and it seems to leap off the page into your heart. Or when you've come together with a fellow saint to sit down and chat and your heart's just revived and empowered by the Word of God and by the voice of the Lord through your brother or sister. Or when you sit down to a meal and you just put both hands on the table and that heart cry goes up, Thank you, Lord, for this bread that you have provided for me. And you know the weight of the joy that God has provided for you. This is the Passover has been restored. The life connection to God. He has reconciled us to him. So the Hebrew voice is restored. Second, you know, the Levites are purified. The Levites are purified. God restores life and then purifies the Levites here. Uh, Foul hands, uh, the commentator McLaren says, foul hands cannot dispense the bread of life. Foul hands cannot dispense the bread of life. So they must be clean. They must be purified. These priests in chapter 6 are re-entering into a continual sacrificial loop. They're going to wash sacrifice, wash, clean, sacrifice, wash, clean, sacrifice, wash, clean, sacrifice. That's going to be their role. And they're going to constantly need cleansing. The law of Moses demands that priests constantly clean themselves, that they constantly refresh and clean themselves. Our high priest, however, is better. Our high priest is better. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 and following, it says, for it, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Jesus is our high priest, just in case you missed it. Jesus is the high priest. And then we have a priest who is holy, innocent, unstained. Three things about his character. Holy, innocent, unstained. He's perfectly clean. Then two things about his position. He's separated from sinners and he's exalted above the heavens. Note, not in the heavens, above them. He's greater than all that you could imagine, even beyond the sky. So he's greater than the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, Jesus is the the owner of an oath. He's the one he's made high priest by an oath, not by a law, not by legal. God instead says, you are my priest after the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110, which came later than the law. Appoints, it appoints him as a son who has been made perfect forever. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. Hebrews chapter 7 is about the high priest. And there's several things that we see there. The high priest being Jesus. About our high priest. 
So we see these several things here. First, he's holy, innocent, and unstained there in verse 26. He's separated from sinners and exalted above heavens. His position is greater than ours in verse 26. He's not bound by any law in verses 11 through 14. The Levites were bound by the law. Jesus, on the other hand, does not come from the tribe of Levite. He comes from the tribe of Judah. And the author of Hebrews argues that because of that, there's no law governing him. Indeed, he writes the law. He is the Lord over the law. He is the Lord of the law. And therefore, he is not bound by the law. He is instead the king over the law who is the one that directs and makes and designs the law. So he's not bound by it, as as it says in verses 11 through 14 of that chapter. He's also not bound by death in verses 15 through 18. He will never die. He's eternal. Jesus does not die. High priests die. I don't know if you knew that. Real people, high priests and Levites, they die. And whenever a high priest would die, that meant if you ran to a city of refuge to get safety, if you did something wrong and you ran to a city of refuge, you had to wait until the high priest, you were safe in that city until the high priest died. Then when the high priest died, you had to go to trial. So if you committed a sin or something against a neighbor, and it was something grievous like murder, then you could run to one of these cities, and as long as you were in the city, as long as the high priest was alive, you were safe. But when the high priest died, everything was gone. Jesus never dies. You were guilty of sin, you're guilty of wickedness, and we have run to the refuge of Jesus Christ, and he will never die. So that sin that you were guilty of, that sin that you are guilty of, that sin that you're going to be guilty of, is covered by a high priest who will never die. His guarantee is sure, and it is secure. And then he is secure, perfect, and complete. Oh, I'm sorry. He also is a priest by oath, not by requirement. So he's given the oath by God. Think about it this way. Instead of uh, walking through a process to become the priest and then walking through that process over and over to get recertified, to get recertified as priest over and over and over, they have to go back and get these certifications over and over and over. Jesus, on the other hand, has an oath. So where those priests were given a certificate that they they weren't really given a certificate, just imagine with me there. They're given certification. They're given approval over and over and over. Jesus, on the other hand, is given a badge. You know the difference between a badge and a certificate, right? Security guards have certificates. Rent-a-cops have certificates. Police officers have badges. If a rent-a-cop pulls you over for speeding, all he can do is go, I'm going to tell the policeman. If a policeman pulls you over, you're in trouble. Jesus has a badge. He's been given an oath. He's been made he's been made the authority, the high priest by oath. He doesn't need a recertification. And then finally, he's secure, perfect and complete. That's the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 7. I encourage you to read it. It's very Enjoyable to read and go through it. So the Hebrew voice is restored in the Passover. The Levites are purified. And finally, there's a change in worshipers. There's a change in worshipers. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from the exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated themselves 
himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Note earlier in the book, it said the people of the land were not allowed to join in the building. And the emphasis was the people of the land were trying to synchronize worship. They were trying to add Jehovah or Yahweh into the worship of what they already did. And so the leaders say, you cannot build with us. You cannot join with us in this building. And so they are excluded earlier in the book. And yet here they are allowed. Why are they allowed? They are allowed because they they were separated from the uncleanness of, same phrase, the people of the land. They had made a decision to move from the people of the land to the people of God. They had a heart transformation from the people of the land to the people of God. They heard the voice of God in their heart and they followed. That's what happened. That's the difference. That's what happened. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God God of Israel. Hebrew voice is restored. The Levites are purified and there's a change in worship. The change in worship comes because they have trusted in the Passover lamb for their salvation. They have trusted in the God who saves. They have believed and followed him. And so as a result, what we saw there in that last verse was that they have an emphasis on joy that derives from knowing God. Joy that derives from knowing God. They are people of God now grafted in, as Isaiah would tell us, grafted in to the people of Israel. Oh, that we would recognize that God has done this in us and has spoken our heart language to us and has given us the ability to speak to him in Jesus Christ and not for us only, not for me only, but for all who would trust in Jesus Christ, for all who trust and believe in Jesus and be saved, that we would recognize this joy that comes from this knowing Jesus Christ. There's an emphasis on joy here and on favor. Jesus brings us everlasting joy and peace. Oh, Father, we pray that this would be a reason.